My name is Corey Zimmerman, and I have the incredible privilege of serving the greatest college students in the world. Y'all are my joy, my crown, my jewel. Everything that Paul says in the New Testament is true about you to me, and I love y'all. This morning, we've been going through a series here at First Irving. It's called The Gospel-Shaped Life. And in this series, we're looking at different aspects of the gospel and how it transforms not only our personal lives, but also the life of the church. It's like we're taking the most beautiful diamond in the world and we're holding it up to the light and rotating it each Sunday so that we can get a a different angle of the beauty of the gospel and what lies in the heart of the good news. Two weeks ago, Pastor Moises, if you were here, preached on John chapter 3. He talked about the great need that we have that's found in the gospel. And last week on Easter, Pastor Justin preached on the message of the gospel from Romans chapter 5. Verse 1 says that we are justified by faith. This week, I have the privilege of talking to us and coming from God's word about the hope of the gospel. You know, as I was preparing this week, hope is a really interesting concept for us to consider, isn't it? We often place our hope in a number of different things throughout life. I know that we have quite a few Dallas Cowboys fans in the room. You might be placing your hope in next year's team to finally be the one that breaks the Super Bowl drought after 26 years, 27 years, whatever it is, continues to go on. Maybe in this room, we've got parents who are hoping that one day their children will graduate high school. They will either go to college or they will move into a trade and they will make a, a life for themselves. Even though right now you're just like, Lord Jesus, help me keep them alive till 18. And for our college students, got about two and a half weeks left, and maybe you're just hoping, Lord Jesus, get me to the end of this semester. That's all I'm asking. That's all my hope is in. But this morning, what would you say is the hope of the gospel? The whole purpose of our time here this morning. What is the hope? And I I hope you realize this morning We've not been trying to hide that answer to that question. It's been very clear from the call to worship to the corporate prayer to the songs that we sing that it is one thing and one thing alone that's the hope of the gospel. And it is this, and it'll be on the screen for us. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central hope of the gospel. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central hope of the gospel. It impacts both our present lives and our internal lives. It changes the way that we view sickness and we view success. It changes the way that we view suffering and we view joy. And it even changes the way that we view death and life. Simply put, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything for those who are in Christ. And it's the anchor of our soul 
as Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 tells us. So this morning, we're going to see how Paul shows us this glorious truth in a very unconventional way. And so if you haven't already turned there, go ahead and flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll primarily be spending time in verses 12 through 22. Tanner, thank you so much, wherever you are, for reading this morning. I won't read it again, but we will constantly go to the text. And so please have that open, ready to do that with me. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 22, we're going to see three statements on the resurrection by Paul. Three statements of the resurrection to the church of Corinth by Paul. And the first is this, the concern of denying a bodily resurrection in verse 12. For those of you who don't have much background in this letter in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to a letter that the church of Corinth wrote him. And in that letter, he, they brought up a number of difficult issues that the church was trying to process through. Go ahead and do it. Issues like sexual immorality. Yeah, that says the Lord. Sexual immorality. Lawsuits, marriage, head coverings, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, orderly worship. And man, there's just a number of things in 1 Corinthians that Paul seeks to to deal with because the church is experiencing disunity. The church is experiencing division. And Paul's writing this letter so that they get these matters, they get these principles right so that the church would be unified together around the gospel. And it's interesting that Paul saves the last and most important issue for last, the resurrection. But why is Paul addressing the resurrection in this letter? Well, he answers it for us in verse 12. Let's look at the text together. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? You see, there are were factions within the church of Corinth that denied a bodily resurrection. And I don't want us to harp too much on the church of Corinth. This was actually something very popular throughout uh, even the New Testament epistles. Paul's constantly having to address the resurrection. Either churches like Corinth were denying there was such a thing as the resurrection, or churches like the church of Thessalonica were saying that the resurrection already happened. And so there's this constant issue that Paul was trying to bring clarity to, but this is what happened. Their line of thinking about the resurrection was more influenced by the culture around them by the, by, uh, rather than the gospel that they received. They were allowing the, the Roman Greek culture to inform their view of the resurrection. You see the concept of a physical embodied existence after death was only talked about in popular Greek fables. It was foolishness in the culture that they existed to believe in a bodily resurrection. And unfortunately, that same logic had infiltrated the church and had affected their own understanding of the resurrection. I mean, can you imagine the impact this would have on their understanding of the gospel in the Christian life. 
there's no bodily resurrection. Do, do you know how much that changes? Well, Paul's about to paint it very clearly how much of an impact that has. And the, the beginning of verse 12 is, is less of a, how can some of you say it's more of a, how dare you? How can this be that you're believing this? He's astonished at their line of thinking. For Paul, this was a gospel-altering issue, so it was utmost concern to him. And then Paul, being the master rhetorician that he is, starts down an argument that shows just how big of a concern this is for him. And that leads us to our second statement about the resurrection, the consequence of denying a bodily resurrection. See, Paul is communicating to the Corinthians that the misunderstanding of a resurrection will have a theological domino effect on the gospel. If there is no bodily resurrection, then there will be consequences for your faith. But Paul, being the master teacher that he is, basically says, okay, I'll play along with you. Let's walk down this together. Let's say there is no bodily resurrection. And as we will see throughout these verses, the consequences erode key aspects of the gospel until it's no more, until there is no more gospel. And so let's look at the six consequences of there being no bodily resurrection. And you might be saying, that's a lot of consequences. We're gonna move through them very quickly. There's six consequences of no bodily resurrection. The first is this. If there's no bodily resurrection, Christ was not resurrected from the dead. This is such a big deal that Paul mentions it twice. He mentions it in verse 13. He mentions it in verse 16. Verse 13, he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And in verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. You see, denying the bodily resurrection of believers is denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Either we both experience the resurrection or neither of us do. Paul clearly emphasizes this as the biggest theological domino that will have devastating consequences for the Corinthian church. How devastating? Paul continues. If Christ is not resurrected then, verse 14, your preaching is in vain. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then the preaching of the gospel is meaningless. It's a waste of time. There's no good news if the Savior you're proclaiming is dead. The message becomes worthless and it becomes both hollow in content, but also in effect. The message of the gospel, according to Romans 1.16, is no longer that has the power to save. If Christ is dead, then the gospel has no power to save. There's no good news. There's nothing to preach. There's nothing to proclaim. There's nothing to share. But as he's building his argument, continues to get more intense. We see the third consequence. There's a misrepresentation of God and the apostles. Let's look back at verses three through eight as Paul begins this chapter. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died according, or that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, 
in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared, listen to what Paul does here, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul was not just simply recounting the resurrection account. He was doing with a very intentional purpose that, hey, Jesus, in fact, did raise from the dead because that's what he said he was gonna do, and over 500 people saw it happen. And so if you're saying there's no bodily resurrection, then you're saying God's a liar, you're saying that Peter's a liar, you're saying that James is a liar, John's a liar, Matthew's a liar, the 500 others who were there, liars, are you sure you want to do that, Church of Corinth? Are you sure you want to do that? The fourth one is this. Those in Christ are still in their sin. Those in Christ are still in their sin. That's what he says in verse 17. He says, and if, and, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You might be wondering, how are we still in our sin if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? Because I thought Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And so how does his being raised from the dead impact his death on the cross? Glad you asked. Listen to what one biblical scholar says. He says this, the proof that Christ's death was an effective substitutionary sacrifice for sins lies in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Let me read that again for us. The proof that Christ's death was an effective substitutionary sacrifice for sins lies in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Let me put it very, uh, very, very clearly, very plain. If Jesus is still dead, we're still in our sins because the resurrection is the validation that the atonement was good enough to free us from our sins that it was good enough to wash us clean from our sins and that it was good enough that we can be justified before the Lord. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter four, verse 25. He said, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's not true if he's not raised from the dead. There's no atonement, there's no justification if Jesus stayed in the grave. And with a futile faith in a dead Christ, we continue in our sins and death retains its victory. And that's the point that he makes in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Since eternal death is the punishment for and end result of sin, there can be no escaping it without the bodily resurrection. Those who have died have died once and for all. There's no hope for them beyond the grave. And this leads us to Paul's grand conclusion in the argument, verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. If this life is all that we've got, then following Jesus would be a terrible thing to commit to, wouldn't it? 
If there's no resurrection, then we're just following the words of some dead guy. We're abstaining from certain worldly activities. We're disciplining ourselves for godliness. We're experiencing difficulties because of our faith, but it'd all be meaningless without the resurrection. Persecution, meaningless. Suffering, meaningless. Any great loss we might experience, meaningless. Leads Paul to conclude in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, then it would be better for us to eat, drink, be merry, and enjoy this life. can hear Paul at the end of this argument. Church of Corinth, are you, are you really sure you want to deny the bodily resurrection? Do you understand the consequences of this denial? What about you in the room today? Do you see now why the resurrection matters? Do you see now that it's not something that we celebrate once a year by hiding Easter eggs and taking cute family photos? It's the hope of the gospel. It's how we can get out of bed in the morning. It's why we gather as a church on Sundays. And Paul's about to paint that picture for us far better than I ever could. The last statement We had the concern from denying a bodily resurrection. We had the consequence from denying a bodily resurrection. And then lastly, the confidence from trusting in a bodily resurrection. This is what makes the resurrection the hope of the gospel. Throughout Paul's writing, he uses but in fact when he's about to make a very profound statement about the gospel. And aside maybe from Ephesians chapter two, verse four, I think this is one of the most profound statements that Paul makes about the gospel. Let's look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus is alive. The bodily resurrection It's true. Paul says almost to the church of Corinth, hey, listen, I've I've played this hypothetical game long enough with you. It doesn't really matter what you think about the bodily resurrection. The fact of the matter is that Jesus has been raised from the dead and so shall we. Not only has Jesus been raised from the dead, but his resurrection also has implications for those who are his has implications for those who are his. This is why it's a a glorious hope for us. This is why the resurrection is the hope of the gospel. Paul's about to tell us why. He starts at the end of verse 20 by saying that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. If you're anything like me, when I read first fruits, I'm like, I have absolutely no category for that in my mind whatsoever because though I was raised in the country, I was not of the country and now I'm a city boy. And so I don't know what first fruits means at all. And so if you're like that, let me explain it to you. Paul uses an Old Testament reference here to strengthen his claim when he calls the resurrection of Jesus the first fruits. You see, this term was used to describe the first sheaf of the grain harvest. We see references of that in Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy and elsewhere. 
throughout the Old Testament. The bringing of the first fruits were ultimately for three important things. Bringing of the first fruits was for three things. The first was this it was a community offering. People didn't all bring their first fruits. It was one first fruit of the harvest on behalf of the people. And the first sheaf of the harvest, probably a sheaf of barley, was to be brought to the priest as an offering. And they brought in the sheaf and it was waved before the Lord by the priest. And so this offering was one of praise to Yahweh. It's a praise to Yahweh for being faithful and for doing what he said he would do in providing the harvest for them. Therefore, the first use of the first fruits is an act of worship to God. The second one is this, it served as a confirmation of a full harvest. Served as a confirmation of a full harvest. The dedicated first fruits came to be regarded as the assurance that there is a full harvest to come. In this sense, it takes on the same idea as a deposit that secures what's to come. Imagine those that were reaping the harvest, looking at it, knowing that the coming harvest will be full because of the first fruits that they held in their hands. So it was a community offering, it was a confirmation of a full harvest, and then lastly, and oh, this is so good, served as an indication of the harvest's quality. See, first fruits also refer to a first sample of an agricultural crop that indicates the nature and the quality of the rest of the crop. So ever, however good the first fruits are is how good the rest of the harvest is gonna be. However bad the first fruits are is how bad the rest of the harvest is going to be. Not only will the harvest be full, but we know the quality of what we will harvest based on the first fruits. Do you see the beauty of Paul calling Jesus the first fruits? Community offering, confirmation of a full harvest, an indication of the harvest quality. If you're not catching on, let me do it for you. Jesus being the first fruits was resurrected first and foremost for the glory of God. Jesus being the first fruits from the dead was for the praise and glory and admonition of his father and his father alone. But that was not it. Jesus was also the first fruit in that he is confirming that there's oh so many more to come. He was the first, but he's not the last. There will be more who are bodily raised from the dead. And don't miss this one. Jesus being the first fruits is a foretaste of what the resurrection body will be like. Glorified is how Jesus' body was described. Without fault. Looking forward to that day. His bodily resurrection seals the promise of our bodily resurrection that is to come. Because we have the first fruits, we know the rest of the harvest is coming. 
And we can hope with confidence because Jesus is our first fruits. But how is this made possible? As you're reading through scripture, as you're studying scripture, you always want to ask lots of questions. And we want to ask that. If Jesus is the first fruit of the harvest that we're a part of, how is that so? How did that happen? Well, you don't have to wait very long because Paul answers that question in an emphatic way. Look at verses 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. How is this possible? How can we enjoy the bodily resurrection? Well, to put it simply, it's because we're no longer represented by Adam. (laughs) We're now represented by Christ. Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. And Adam represented the whole human race for all that would follow him. His sin in the garden therefore affected all human beings for all time. In Adam, all die. Not some, not many, all. And this death is not only physical, but it's also spiritual. This affects you, it affects me, it affects those who've come before us, and it'll affect those who come after us. To put it straightforward, in Adam, there is no hope. There's not an ounce of hope. There's no scraping the bottom of the barrel to get just a a glimmer of hope. There's none. There's only eternal separation from the God who created us. I'm gonna steal one of Paul's emphatic statements that he uses elsewhere, but God. (laughs) But God, being rich in mercy and loving us with the great love with which he has loved us, made a way for us. He made a way. He sent a man, as verse 21 says, but it was not just any man, it was the God-man, Christ Jesus. Jesus was born into this world and he lived a perfect life according to the law so that he could die. Can you imagine that? His whole purpose of coming was to die so that he could die as a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And by the action of God the Father in Christ, by raising him from the dead, at last our linkage to Adam's representational headship has been broken. It's no more. Because Christ lives, he represents all who belong to him. And his obedience therefore affects all believers. So now, just as physical death came inevitably from Adam's sin, so Physical resurrection comes inevitably from Christ's resurrection. 
just as sure and as damning as Adam's sin was, is just as sure and life-giving as Jesus' resurrection is to those who are in Christ. For those in Christ, the sleep of death implies a route to being awake once more. And when we awake once more, it will not be with these broken, flawed bodies. No, it will be with perfect resurrection bodies. And as I was thinking about this week, I had to ask myself the question, do I really understand what that means? Do I understand what perfect resurrection body means? Do you? Do you understand what that means? See, it means that my daughter and I won't have food allergies anymore. It means that I don't, I don't have to be terrified when she goes off somewhere with her friends, worried that she's going to eat tree nuts. I don't have to be worried that when I get a cookie, is it going to be somehow laced with peanut butter or peanuts? I don't have to worry about any of that more. I can eat freely. Whatever I want. Whatever my sweet baby girl wants, she can eat without any fear. Not only that, there's no dementia. There's no Alzheimer's. Those who have forgotten us will remember us. We don't have to worry about diabetes. We don't have to worry about cancer. Parkinson's, no more broken bones, no more sprained ankles, no more back pain, no more runny noses. The lame will walk, the blind will see. These are happy tears, these are happy tears. The mute will speak. But that's not the best part. Not only will our bodies be perfect, but we will dwell forever with the one who made them perfect. Forever. Not for a long time. Not for unending time, but forever, for eternity. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And he will bring us into his presence forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the great hope of the gospel. Jesus has been raised, and so shall we. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central hope of the gospel. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? So this morning as we come to a close, how do we respond to this? How do we respond to Paul's beautiful declaration of the gospel and of the bodily resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15? I've got three questions for us to consider this morning. Three questions, and the first, I'm just gonna jump straight to it. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? I wanna be very clear that the hope that we're talking about this morning, the hope that unexpectedly moved me to tears this morning is only for those who are in Christ. It's for us alone. 
those who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior will one day experience a bodily resurrection. But if you aren't in Christ, then you're still in Adam. And being in Adam means that you remain under the judgment of God. And being under his judgment means that one day he will pour out the fullness of his wrath upon you and you will experience eternal separation from him. Furthermore, he's just to do this because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. And we've rebelled against his good and his kindly rule. But there's good news for you this morning if you're in Adam. As Pastor Justin always says, today is the day of your salvation. It's today. Romans 10 verses nine through 10 say this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you want to do this today, I'm here. Other pastors are here. Those who maybe invited you or you are here because they're here are here for you. At the end of this, after I pray and we sing a song of response, I'd love for you to come find me. I'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to follow Jesus and for God to move you from being in Adam to being in Christ. Make that decision today. Number two, my, my second question, I won't spend a lot of time on this question, but I think it's helpful for us to ask this judged off of what happened in the church of Corinth. Are you allowing culture to influence your understanding of the gospel? Are you allowing culture to influence your understanding of the gospel? You see, what some in the Corinthian church believed did not seem harmful to them at first would ultimately end up compromising the gospel. They let outsiders, politicians, entertainers, athletes, professors, other family members change their perception of the bodily resurrection. For us this morning, it, it might not be our understanding of the resurrection, but it might be our understanding of gender of marriage, and I think unfortunately, our understanding of the church, what does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to gather as a church? Do we have to come? Can we log online? Can we be a member of the first metaverse church? If we're not careful, the culture will disciple us away from the gospel. If that's you this morning, maybe the spirit has been churning in your heart. I just, I just encourage you, just like we said in the first question, just come forward, kneel before these steps. There's absolutely nothing special about them. It's just a physical representation of a spiritual posture of your heart of repentance, of Lord, I'm sorry that I'm allowing the culture to disciple me more than, than you and your word. And then lastly, number three, is your life 
characterized by the living hope we have in Jesus? Is your life characterized by the living hope we believe or we have in Jesus? And I would say a, a vast majority of you would say, listen, I believe that there's a resurrection. I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I believe that one day I will be raised from the dead. But here's the deal. We don't live like it. We don't live like we believe that this is not the main life that we have. We don't live like finances are not the end-all, be-all of this Christian life. We don't act like suffering, hardship, relational strife is not the end-all, be-all of this Christian life. What we need to be living like is what 1 Peter 1.3 tells us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, a living hope impacts the way that you view your life. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come back for you, should change the way that you live this life. The trials we undergo, the difficulties we encounter, the suffering we endure, we know that this isn't all there is. As the beautiful song says, our life is worth the living because Jesus lives. But also our living hope impacts the way that we view death. It impacts the way that we view death. And I don't think anyone else exemplifies this more than Paul throughout all of his letters in the New Testament. You see, Paul never once says that Christians die. There's not a time in any of his letters where he says that Christians die. You know what he says? Those who have fallen asleep. They fall asleep. The brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep before us. Those who have fallen asleep. It's a major, major difference in viewing death from a Christian's perspective. I'm not saying it's not easy losing loved ones. I'm not saying that the, the pain and the, the grieving are easy to overcome. Some of you right now are in the midst of that grief. Right now. But this is what I'm saying. If you're in Christ and the person you just lost was in Christ, this wasn't goodbye. It was a see you later. I'll see you when we both wake up. Is your life characterized by the living hope that you have in Jesus? If not, there's no better time than the present. I love how Paul closes 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I believe it's, a, it's an appropriate way for me to close this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, Paul says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
the bodily of res- the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is the central hope of the gospel. Cling to that hope this morning.